So I don't know if you know or not, but there are a rising number of faithful adherents to a new way, or rather I should say an old way of understanding the shape of the earth. Yep. Rejecting the heliocentric, spinning globe cosmology, flat earthers believe that we live on a stationary, flat, disc-shaped earth with the North Pole at the center and a massive 150-foot wall of ice called Antarctica, which naturally holds all the oceans in, right? Because if it's flat, the oceans would just fall off. Now, what's beyond that great wall of ice? That remains to be discovered. In fact, next month they're holding an international conference in Denver with an expected attendance of over 500 people. So this is not just some guys living in their mom's basement who haven't figured out the world, okay? It's growing. This is, I, this is not the stuff of tabloids. My sources come from the New Yorker, the Washington Post, et al. It's not fake news. It's real. Their belief is genuine, and they're acting on it. One man in particular has taken his belief to the next level. It's a belief he spent his life savings and risked his life to prove. Mike Hughes, also known as Mad Mike, I've got a picture of him right here, is a 61-year-old limousine driver from California. Recently, he launched himself over 1,800 feet into the air above the Mojave Desert, reaching a top speed of 350 miles an hour and a homemade rocket made of scrap metal with a, uh, from a heavily modified mobile home as a launch pad. After a minute or so, he parachuted less than gently back to the earth. Now, in case you were wondering, Mad Mike survived the crash. He came out. You can watch all of this on YouTube, and I highly encourage you to. He survived the crash, though he did sustain some injuries. Now, the hope with this launch was to prove that he could build a rocket, launch it, and return safely to Earth in order to raise funds for his ultimate goal. See, that wasn't the goal. That was just to raise funds for his ultimate goal, which is to propel himself 52 miles. 52 miles. That's 274,560 feet into the atmosphere. Because it's not a sphere. It's not the atmosphere. It's the atmosphere. Okay? No, no, that's not even a joke. That's just what they call it. He wanted to get up into the atmosphere, take a picture of our flat earth to prove once and for all that the planet is in fact flat, not round. He intends to prove that NASA has fabricated the shape of the earth. He wants to uncover their conspiracy and begin the real first space program. Though his Kickstarter campaign failed to reach its $150,000 goal, he only raised $310 from two backers. <laughs> Mad Mike did not lose heart. He doubled down on his commitment to the flat earth community that he would eventually expose the conspiracy, even though he humbly acknowledged that he still has much to learn about rocket science. See, Hughes has a genuine belief and that genuine belief has led him to actions that are consistent with his faith. You can accuse Mad Mike of a lot of things, but you can't accuse him 
of, li- of not living out his faith. His actions did not create his faith. Rather, his genuine faith, his genuine belief has led to his work. See, genuine faith produces works. True belief drives action. That's the message of our text this morning. Today, we want to answer the question, how do I know that my faith in God, my faith in Christ is genuine? James is going to discuss in detail the relationship between faith and works, between genuine faith and counterfeit faith. And we're going to see the emptiness of faith without works. Then we're going to see the evidence of faith by works. And finally, at the end, we'll wrap it up to talk about the experience of a faith that works. So we'll see emptiness of faith without works. We'll see the evidence of a faith by works. And we'll look at the experience of a faith that works. Let's look at verse 14 as we begin. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James begins this section with a provocative question. It's meant to catch us off guard. It's meant to wake us up. It's literally meant to send some shockwaves into your soul. Do I really have a faith that saves? Or is my faith merely a facade? Is it empty? What good is a faith, James asks, that's unaccompanied by works? And is such an empty faith able to save? Now, this rhetorical question loudly implies, no, an empty faith is not good and it cannot save. So that begs the question, what is faith? It's one of those words we throw around a lot, but what is it? Now, before we get into what it is, let me just clarify what it's not. Faith is not a mere claim. It is not an empty boast. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a mental curiosity. It's not even merely stating that you think something is true. See, faith and belief in the Bible refer to a deep and abiding trust. Not only do I believe that something is intellectually true, but when I believe it, I put all of my hope and my trust in it. You see, it goes beyond just the mind. Hebrews 11.1 says this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith is saying, my greatest hope will be realized and I'm firmly committed to it. And in fact, I'm so committed to it, I will live my whole life. I'll base my whole life on that belief. It's gonna be the anchor that grounds me. It's gonna be the thing that drives my actions. It drives my motivations. Faith is something that makes sense of everything that you do. It's the organizing principle in your life. Whatever you put your faith in, and that's everybody. That's not just a Christian thing. Everybody has a faith in something or someone. But whatever you put your faith in, whatever you ultimately believe is the foundation upon what you build your life on, whatever that thing is, it's also going to be the thing that makes it all worth it. Not only does it determine what you build your life on, but your faith will determine if it's worth it or not. Is it worth living for? Your faith will determine your identity. It's going to tell you who you are. Your faith is going to determine your priorities, what's important, what's not important. 
It's going to determine your values, those deeply seated beliefs that, 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 are, that are so much a part of you, it's hard to even distinguish them. And your faith will determine your actions. It will set in motion the very things you do. A lot of times we reduce faith to just a set of intellectual propositions. That's not what the Bible is saying. Faith is everything. It's your identity, your values, your beliefs, your priorities, and your actions. James says if someone claims to have faith but does not have works that line up with that faith, he's asking, is that faith genuine? Is it real? Is that the kind of faith that leads to salvation? At this point, James has introduced his central thesis, his central argument into this section. For James, faith directs, drives, and determines your actions. Just saying faith, just saying that you have faith is not the same as saving faith. And claiming to have something is not the same thing as actually having it, right? We know that to be intuitively true. An empty claim lacks substance. See, James isn't asking if genuine faith can save He knows it can. What he's saying is, can a mere claim of faith save? Can a a faith that never produces any change in someone's life, is that actually a real, genuine thing? It's empty. His point is that workless faith, actionless faith, empty faith is impotent and powerless. It's unable to save. And so in case we didn't catch his point, he gives us an illustration. Look at verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you goes to them and says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Remember, genuine faith in Christ is going to change your identity. It's going to set your priorities. It's going to determine your values and your actions. See, when you become a Christian, you don't determine who you are. You don't determine your values. Jesus does. You begin to love what he loves. You value what he values. You act like he would act. So James says, if that's true, there's no way that you would look at a person who's poorly clothed and hungry and just give them some empty kind of blessing and say, go about your business. Failure to provide for an obvious need calls into question the faith of the one who fails to act. See, empty words begin to reveal an empty faith. Faith that's not acted out, James says, is not really faith at all. It's empty and it lacks substance. James says a faith that does not have works is dead. Now that little word have in there, faith uh, does not have works, it, it implies the idea of causation and production. What he's saying is it's a faith that produces works. It has, it's the fruit of it. Faith will produce and bring about works. In fact, James is saying empty faith won't produce anything. Why? Because it's empty. It lacks substance. It's not even real, so it can't produce anything real. But faith in Christ, a real faith, a genuine faith, will produce Christ-like works. See, whatever the faith is, it will produce works that are in line 
with that faith. Like you shouldn't expect apples to come from a fig tree, right? That, if you said, hey, my fig tree's broken, and I came to you and said, well, what's wrong with it? And you're like, it's not producing apples. I'd be like, well, you should get an apple tree. Yeah, if you want apples, you should get an apple tree. That's what apple trees do. They, they, they produce that kind of fruit, not figs. If you want figs, you get a fig tree. It's, it, James was saying, isn't that so, it's, it's simple, right? Whatever your faith is in, whatever it is, it will produce fruit in line with it. So if you're a Christian tree, you will produce Christian fruit. James is saying, actions betray what you say you believe. Because genuine faith always results in obedience to Jesus' teaching. There's lots of teaching of Jesus that talk about um, caring for the poor. Let me give you one example that came near the end of his public ministry on the cusp of his crucifixion. He was teaching on the ethics of the kingdom in Matthew 25, and we see these words. Uh, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then those who he's talking to will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in person and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will enter into eternal life. Man, that's stark, isn't it? He's coming up to these guys and they're going, Man, Jesus, we never saw you like that. And he's saying, that's not what I'm talking about. Every time you denied it to those around you, it was like you were denying it to me because you weren't living out the faith that you supposedly say you believe in. Jesus said, caring for the poor and needy is not optional. And when you neglect them, it's like you're neglecting me. Faith in Christ will lead to Christ-like works. Now, I feel like I always have to caveat some of these things. I'm not talking about enabling people. I'm not talking about not having healthy boundaries. You have to have those things in place. We have to use wisdom in how we help the poor and needy and with compassion to work as hard as we can so that we try to get to the underlying issues, right? We don't want to just merely give things to people and not help them in their totality. Every case is different, and it requires a lot of discernment for how to actually help. And this isn't a sermon on how to help needy people, but suffice to say, we can't offer people pithy one-liners, empty smiles, and just say, hey, go be warm, go be filled, go in peace, and think we've done our job. Genuine faith in Christ will lead to helping people, the outcast and the poor, and it's going to cost you. Like it will actually physically drain money from your bank account. It will take time off your calendar. It will cost you. But then you go, but it costs Jesus, right? He was willing at cost to himself to help us. The faith that does not produce works is dead. See, things that are alive produce things and do things. James says a faith, has st- that, a faith that stopped producing or has never, ever really produced is dead. Now, I hope that's shocking to some of us. It's supposed to. It's meant to. James is intentionally being provocative. He wants us to wake up and ask some hard questions. Does the faith I really claim 
Does the faith I claim produce works or is it empty? Now James has challenged us to consider the emptiness of workless faith. Next he's going to show evidence of faith by works. Look with me at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, in this section, James refutes a potential objection that someone could bring, and it goes something like this. Hey, James, not so fast. Why does it have to be both? Why do I have to have faith and works? Why not divide and conquer? How about this? You handle the faith department, and I'll handle the works department, right? Sounds like a good idea. Some people have faith. Some people have works. Can't we all just get along? James says, buddy, it doesn't work like that. Genuine faith is not dormant. Genuine faith will produce uh, works. So James offers a counterpoint, and he says, look, you can't prove that your claim is true. You can't prove that you actually have a genuine faith without works. Because, see, faith is not something you can see, and so you have to do something to bring that internal reality to the surface so that we can see if your claim is actually true. Without proof, your claim is just that, a claim. Look at verse 19. You believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So James is hard-hitting here, isn't he? He gives another example of an empty faith that cannot save. Here it is. Intellectual belief without the requisite change. He says, look, let me give you an example of someone who's got really good and sound theology. It's good that you believe that God is one and not many. That's good theology. But did you know even the demons believe that? Did you know that the demons believe the same thing? But instead of letting that truth change their behavior, they persist in their rebellion. See, the truth is believed intellectually, but it doesn't affect their heart and change their behavior. That faith does not produce the work of change, and James says, it's useless. So what? You've got good theology, but it doesn't lead to anything. Without change, their correct doctrine fails to meet the standard of genuine faith, and in its emptiness, all that's left is fear of judgment. What James is saying is you can be doctrinally accurate, but without repentance, and change, it's empty. It doesn't mean anything. James says if your faith doesn't show itself in deeds, then your faith is no different than a demon's. I mean, that's a stark contrast. It's provocative. It's meant to be. Mere theological recognition lacks relational trust and action. And James says if you stay in denial about that, it's the epitome of foolishness. It's the opposite of, with, of wisdom. A faith without works does not work. Now look at verse 21. Here's another example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and his faith was completed by his works. And then the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. 
you see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So, so far, James has given us two examples of empty faith. The first was of someone offering empty words instead of helping a person in need. And the second was correct doctrine without repentance that's supposed to come with that doctrine. Next, James is going to give us two examples of faith, of a faith, of a genuine faith that produced works. We're going to look at Abraham and we're going to look at Rahab. Now, when we just read this, maybe when Lauren was reading it or when I just recapped it again, maybe you heard something in these verses that at first glance appears to differ from the clear teaching of Scripture. If you've spent any time in a faithful Bible preaching church, you know that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not because of works. Our good works do not earn our our salvation. Good works do not earn favor with God. Salvation is a gift that you receive, not a benefit you earn through your good works. Just to make it really clear, I put these two verses up that are going to appear to be um, a a contradiction. James 2.24 says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now look right below at Romans 3.28, Paul. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And if you're looking at those two things, you go, wait a minute. How can both of those be true at the same time? It appears that they're in contradiction to one another. But let's suspend disbelief for just a moment and let's work through the text because, spoiler alert, the Bible does not contradict itself. Now, in verse 21, James recalls the example of Abraham, okay? He says, wasn't our father in the faith Abraham justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar? If you want to read that whole story about Abraham, go back to Genesis chapter 12. That's where, you, that's where we first meet Abraham, and you can detail all of his life. That story about Isaac and the altar is in Genesis 22. But let me quickly summarize some relevant parts. See, God had promised Abraham in his old age that he would finally have a son. He was 75 years old, and God said, you're going to get a son. And he said, seriously? 75? It's a long time. Okay? He also told him that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and that eventually God would use his family to bless the entire world. It's a huge promise. Required a ton of faith to believe that at 75 that he would actually have a child. But the Bible tells us that Abraham believed and he trusted God. And by faith, Abraham was considered righteous by God. It took 25 more years before that promise came to fruition. If you thought it was hard to have a child at 75, try having one at 100. I barely had the energy for mine, and I'm 35. Imagine chasing a kid around at 100. After 25 years of believing and waiting, God made good on his promise, gave Abraham a son named Isaac. That same son, a few years later, God comes to Abraham to test his faith. And he says, Abraham, I want you to take your boy, your only son, and go offer him as a sacrifice to me. It is one of the most gut-wrenching passages in all of the Bible. Every time I come to it in my yearly reading plan, I cringe. I'm confused by it. I'm a little provoked by it. I don't understand it. But the Bible tells us the next morning, Abraham gets up, he takes Isaac, some of his servants, and they head out to Mount Moriah. And you can just feel 
the tension in the story. They're walking on their way and Isaac's going, hey, what are we doing, dad? And he's like, we're going to go offer a sacrifice to the Lord, something they had done before. And Isaac's like, great, that sounds awesome. And they've got the wood and they've got the, the rope and they've got the knife. And, and, and the Bible tells us Isaac starts to clue in. Like on the way there, he's like, dad, we've got the wood, we've got the, the ropes, you've got the knife. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham just keeps saying, God will provide, God will provide, God will provide. They get to the base of the mountain. And he tells his servants, stay here. We, Isaac and I, will go up on the mountain and worship. And don't miss this. He says, we will come again. We will come back down. Me and Isaac, we're coming back down. So there's this tension. Abraham is prepared to obey the Lord. And yet somehow, in his faith, he knows that no matter what happens, God is going to make good on his promise. How is he going to have a family line through Isaac if he's dead? That's the tension. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham's faith was so deep that he believed that even if he had to go through with this act, that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He knew we're coming back down one way or another. And as just as he raised his hand against Isaac, God stops him and provides a substitute. There's a ram in the thicket. And in that moment, Abraham's faith was put to the test and proven to be genuine. Didn't create his faith, but with his great faith, he was willing to put that faith into action. Now, of course, God knows Abraham's heart. He doesn't need a test to see if he's really uh, believing in him or not. God sees right through all of our veneer into our hearts right now. He saw Abraham's heart and knew exactly where it was, and he sees your heart and my heart right now. He doesn't need this test, but God often brings us into situations that force what's on the inside to come out, not for God's knowledge, but for our knowledge so that we see what our faith is. And it's actually these fires of trial that work to refine and purify our faith. We saw that earlier in James chapter one. James says this test put his faith into action and worked to bring his faith to God's desired end. So how is it that Abraham was justified by works and not by faith alone? And how does that not contradict Paul right here? See, the issue really comes down to the different ways that James and Paul use the word justify. See, there's different ways to use words, right? Words have a, a, a range of meaning. See, Paul uses the word justify to speak about the legal standing with God. For, for Paul, uh, justification is more of the, the technical term. For Paul, he's trying to ask the question, are we guilty or not guilty? Paul teaches that every one of us, every single person in this room, even if I don't know your name, I know one thing about you, that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because we've broken God's law, we deserve to face his righteous consequences. But God in his grace provides a substitute to pay the penalty for our sins. See, on our own, on judgment day, none of us will be able to speak a word in our defense. We've got nothing to say. We're guilty and we know it. Without Christ, our verdict is guilty. But in Christ, God declares us 
not guilty. Not that we deserve it, because we don't. We don't deserve it. And we've done nothing to earn our acquittal. In fact, everything we've done to earn is to, is to, is to, uh, to warrant that verdict of guilty. But God in his grace offers us pardon. And it's all by grace so that no one can boast. Our right standing with God, our justification, our new verdict of not guilty is purely and solely the gift of a gracious and merciful God. For Paul, justification is answering the question, how can guilty sinners like you and me be reconciled and received into favor with God? The answer, by grace and grace alone. Faith then is that trust that God will accept us because of Christ's life and death and, uh, for our sin in our place. Anti-faith is trying to earn my salvation and acceptance with God. Good works don't earn favor with God and they certainly don't cancel out the bad things we've done. That's why Paul says no one is justified. No one is made right by their works. So for Paul, he says, when God justifies a sinner, he means he declares a sinner not guilty on the basis of Christ's work, not yours. That's why Paul says it's not based on works. It's based on the finished work of Christ. Now stay with me here. Where Paul uses justify in its legal aspect, James uses justify in its demonstration or validation aspect. James says that works validate or demonstrate the reality of a person's faith. See, we use these words like this all the time. So for example, you might have had a conversation with someone and they say, hey, justify that for me. Like, how, how can you tell me that that is true? What we're asking is, hey, demonstrate for me, validate for me, prove to me that what you're saying is true. We're not saying make it true. We're saying give me some reasons Give me some evidence. I want some proof so that I can believe what you're saying. I'm not saying make it true. I'm saying show me that it's true. We can use justify like that as well. And that's how James uses it. We know James doesn't think you earn salvation. He said as much earlier in the letter. Remember in James chapter 2 verse 5, he said that those who love God will inherit the kingdom. See, a Christian fundamentally is an heir. We're sons and daughters of God who receive an inheritance. You earn wages because of what you do and for what you earn, right? When you get your paycheck, it's not that your boss is being gracious and generous, right? You worked and so you deserve it, right? You earned it. But you receive an, see, you earn ages for what you do and for what you earn, but you receive an inheritance because of who you are. Effort determines wages. Relationship determines inheritance. Do you see the difference between those two things? James isn't teaching that we can earn salvation by works. He's saying by God's grace, we receive an inheritance that's beyond comprehension. James says Abraham proved, showed, demonstrated his, that his faith was genuine by his actions. So when James says we're justified by works, he's saying we prove and give concrete evidence that we actually have real, genuine faith in God. A mere profession of faith is not enough to substantiate, to prove that you're right with God. 
Paul says you're made righteous only by faith in the work of Christ, not by your works. James says your faith is proven to be genuine by your works. Philip Melanchthon, who was a protege of Martin Luther, basically summarized everything I just said in 10 minutes in one sentence. He said, we're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. Do you see that? We're not saved. We are saved by faith alone, but that saving faith will not remain alone. It will be put into action. Now look at verse 25. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Rahab risked her life to hide the spies. But she believed God was going to give Jericho to Israel, and she wanted to serve the living God. See, she's the opposite of the person back in verses 15 through 16 who said to those in need, oh, hey, go, go in peace, be filled, and be warmed. She's the opposite of that person. See, she saw genuine need, and she met it. They needed protection, and she gave them her home. They needed an ally, and she gave them herself. She offers her house, her resources, her ingenuity, her personal safety to meet their needs. James says, don't you see how her faith in God was evidenced by her works? She couldn't have just said to those guys, hey, I'm, hey I believe in God too, but uh, go in peace and be warmed and filled. Her faith led her to actions. And then James finishes out the last verse and he says this. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Abraham and Rahab, they're given as examples of people who did not merely believe intellectually, but acted on that faith. Their works gave evidence of their faith. See, genuine faith does not merely express itself in empty words and creeds, but in action and deeds. If we know all the right words, but never do anything. James wants us to ask the hard question, do we really have faith we claim, the, the faith that we claim? Faith expresses itself in works. The faith that saves is not a barren faith, but a fruitful one. If you try to separate faith from works, James says it's like separating the body from the spirit. If you separate faith from works, it's like separating the body from the spirit. And the moment that you do, you end up with a corpse. It's dead. So we've seen the emptiness of faith without works, and we've seen the evidence for faith by works. Let's look at the last part to see the experience of a faith that works. So throughout this passage, I've purposely not highlighted some things that were going on in there. Because they, they, they talk about our experience as a people with a faith that works. The first thing is that we're adored. See, if you have a faith that works, you're adored by God. Did you catch that in verse 23? James says that Abraham believed and was called a friend of God. His genuine belief resulted in him becoming a friend of God. Now, if you contrast that to the demon's empty faith, he was an enemy of God. See, God, Abraham, by his faith, enjoys God's presence, and the demons shudder at his presence. Two completely different results because of two completely different faiths. The demons have a recognition of what is true. Abraham has a recognition of what's true 
that results in a faith that transforms his head, his heart, and his hands. See, empty faith stops short of repentance. You may know what's true, but it's empty, so you never cross the line of repentance. And as a result, it never enters into friendship with God. If you have a faith that works, you will have a friendship with God. So is your faith truncated? Is it cut short? Has your faith come up short or has it worked its way from the head and to the heart and into the hands? Does your faith make you shudder at God's presence or does your faith make you a friend of God? The second experience of, of a faith that works is that we become alive. Remember, James said faith that works is dead, but a faith that works is alive. See, when the seed of faith is planted in the believer, it starts to grow, right? Just like uh, if you plant something in your garden, the seed germinates and uh, sprouts poke through the soil, roots become established, and before long, a healthy plant is produced, and that healthy plant produces fruit called works. So what is your experience of faith? Maybe for some of you in here, your faith is dormant. It's there, it's really there, but it's laying low below the surface, dormant. Like this winter, all of the vegetation is gonna be dormant below the surface. If that's you, you need to wake it up and put it into action. It needs the light and the warmth of Christ to enliven it. Maybe for some of you in here, your faith is distracted. You've become focused on other things. Your priorities are out of line. And it's time to focus and put your faith into action. Or maybe, some of you in here, your faith is dead. And what I mean by that is it's non-existent. It's flatlined. It can't grow simply because it's dead. Dead things don't grow. I know that's profound and shocking. But it doesn't. If that's you, the only way to a faith that's alive is to put your faith in Christ who is alive. You need him to make you alive and that alive faith will become active. And that's the third thing that we see in this passage is that faith that works is active. True faith gives, takes risks, and it gets involved. A living and active faith is willing to take personal risks at personal cost to meet needs around you. Now, sometimes those needs might be physical. Did you know that by God's design, very often our abundance is given by him with a design and intention that we would give it to others who are in need? Sometimes those needs aren't merely physical, they're emotional. Maybe the greatest gift you could give someone this week is your time and your unhurried presence not distracted by your phone, but just gave them your undivided, unhurried attention. One of the joys of being the pastor of this church is I get to meet with a lot of you in a lot of different contexts. And over the last year, there's been something that's come up over and over, time and time again. I constantly hear how the people in this church are lonely. And it breaks my heart. Because in the community of faith, we have provision for that very real need. We just have to be willing to give it. We have to be willing to look around and go, who in my immediate sphere, who in this room might be lonely and would benefit from the gift of my 
presence. You see, as we experience the grace and mercy of God, our hearts will be transformed and changed so that our love for God starts to be uh, changed into a love for others. So as we close, I have to ask, is this your experience of faith? When you look at your life, do you see yourself as one who's adored by God? Is your faith alive? Is it active? See, we're not saved by works, but we are saved for works. Our genuine belief in God will inevitably be characterized by works. See, James is not merely offering a challenge to his first century readers. He's actually looking at each one of us today, this morning, and asking us hard questions. Do we merely claim faith, or do we have a faith that saves? Is our faith proven, shown to be true by our works? Abraham and Rahab gave us a picture of what our faith and action can look like. And while they're great examples, both of them are merely the shadows that point to the substance of Christ. Both of them point to Jesus, who who alone is able to stir the dormant, focus the distracted, and raise to life the dead. See, Abraham obeyed when he thought it was unthinkable. Jesus himself prayed in the garden on the night of his betrayal and said, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. At cost to himself, Jesus walked the hill of Calvary. Where Abraham was ultimately spared the cost of seeing his son die, on the cross, the father was not spared the horror of giving up his son. Abraham had a substitute provided, but there was no substitute for Christ. There was no lamb in the thicket. For Christ, the Lamb of God, was the one slain on the cross. Where Rahab gave of her possessions and put herself at risk, ultimately she was spared, wasn't she? She was delivered, but not Christ. Jesus gave up his glory, and his life was not spared. He was delivered into the hands of the very ones he came to save. His faith was genuine, and it produced a work far greater than we could have asked or imagine. And now our faith is secure in Christ because of his works. And he even works now in us to perfect it. So friends, if you find that you have a weak faith, take hope. His faith is stronger. Where your faith lacks to produce good works, his work is all we need. So don't Put your faith in what you can do. Put your faith in the Christ who works in you and through you. And that's the beauty and the hope of the gospel. See, I don't want you to walk out here thinking that I've got to believe, I I believe in God and now all of this depends on me. That is a weight that will crush you. The answer today is put your faith in Christ who paid it all, has done it all, and is all in all. See, the Christian can boldly declare, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the end. So the pressure is off. So when we fail, we don't have to be crushed by it. When we succeed, there's no pride that wells up in us as well. And that frees us to live out the faith he's given us and to rest. So family, put your faith in action. Do your very best and trust him for the outcomes. By faith, live and serve God and trust that what you can do is all you can do and that it's enough.